If you are able, uh, please stand with me for the reading of the word. We are in uh, Matthew 7, chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, it'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can, it, how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there is a beam of wood in your own eye? Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, we've got a, a good word this morning, a challenging word. Um, from the book of Matthew, if you've been with us, you know we've been walking through the book of Matthew. Specifically right now, we are in the, the Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus preached um, to this new community that was forming. I think that's very appropriate for us here at Carlisle as, as God is forming a new community from Carlisle Ave New Baptist, from Sojourn, uh, and from those that are going to be joining us over the next, uh, over the next little bit, that there's this this culture and this community that's being built. And Jesus is speaking directly uh, to that community. And if you've, if you've been following along, you know that there's some themes. And one of those themes that's coming out of the Sermon of the, of the Mount is that Jesus is painting for us a picture of what it's like to be that community. A picture of what is it like to be citizens of the kingdom of God. What is it like to have a heart what is it like to have habits that reflect the truth of who Jesus is, of who God is? And he's calling us to that type of life. That's the picture that he's painting. And if, and if you've been following along, you also know that, that he's been doing what I, what I would say, he's been doing some tilling work, right? It's kind of springtime now. For those of you that have a garden, um, maybe you've worked, you know, probably not a lot of uh, farmers here, but maybe there's a few that have worked in the farm, farming. But you can imagine, like, you know, in the spring, sometimes the the, after, a, after a long winter, the soil gets hard. Um, it gets compressed. It's hard to get seeds in it. It's hard to get water in it. And so you've got to till up that soil. And Jesus has been doing this um, throughout the Sermon of the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say to you, Right? He's digging up some of that, that hard religious soil, not only for them in the first century, but also for us. And what he's really been tilling at, what he's really been exposing, is this idea that, that, um, that you can pin your hopes on uh, outward expressions of obedience. That, that, um, that we can pin our hopes on, on the appearance or, or even the actual just doing good things. He's, he's, been, he's been digging at the root of that saying, hey, look, our hope is not in the fact that we can earn the favor of God. That's been one of the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's important for us to, um, to know that uh, as we step into this particular text to understand the context of this text. So the kingdom of God is about the transforming power of the gospel, working in our hearts, transforming our hearts, um, and giving us the opportunity to actually live in the way that Jesus is calling us to. 
Um, if you were here last week, we were at the end of chapter 6. Uh, Pastor James was here. Um, the, the heading of that uh, in our Bible is, is anxiety or do not worry. And, uh, and the focus of, 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 that, of that text in the sermon was um, don't be so worried about, you know, where are you going to sleep? Where are you going to eat? How are you going to be fed? But trust in the goodness of God. Don't be so worried about your business. Trust that God is a good and loving God, right? We heard that from Pastor James last week. And, and here Jesus makes the shift to not only don't worry about, you know, wh- where you're going to eat and sleep and eat, but also don't be so worried about everybody else's business. That's kind of the shift to, to, to do not judge. Um, and uh, it made me think as I was going through this, it made me think about my grandmother. Uh, my grandma Eleanor, she passed away this year. Um, I love my grandma. She was um, she wasn't your your typical sweet like uh, lifetime movie grandma, um, but I loved her. She was she was super fun. And um, uh, one of the things that 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 I found amusing about my grandmother was there were two things that were always on her radar: um, the Blue Jays and uh, the, and what's going on at the neighbor's house. Um, and when I say Blue Jays, uh, I'm not talking about the baseball team. Um, my mother was a die-hard Detroit Tigers fan uh, through and through. Um, I meant that she always knew where the Blue Jays were around her house. My grandmother liked to feed birds, and she had bird feeders all over, but she did not like to feed Blue Jays. I don't understand why. I don't know why that particular bird she did not like. Maybe some of you understand why, but I didn't. So she would, she, do you know? Yeah, are they, are they they're very mean little birds, are big birds, right? So she would yell at the birds. She would throw shoes at the window if they're at the feeder. I mean, we'd be having a conversation, and all of a sudden she'd be like, ah, she'd throw something, and boom, you know, and it would just, I'm like, what is going on? And apparently some blue jay made it to the feeder. The other thing that was always on her radar was what was going on next door. She'd be like, man, you know, uh, Jim has been a lot of time in the garage today. He's been up there six times. Like, how would... We've been sitting here playing cards. How do you know that? You know, I noticed Jane's 20 minutes late getting home from work. Like, Grandma, how do you like? How are you so aware of what's going on? How do you know that they burnt the the roast? I mean, you're not even there. How do you know? Um, so she she just kind of always had on the radar what's going on. And I, and much like my grandmother, sometimes in the Christian life, especially when we start to um, get obsessed about are we doing the right things? Um, are we uh, are we uh, following the rules? We can start to not only be obsessed with what's going on in our lives, we can also start to get obsessed with what's going on with those around us. And I think Jesus is inviting us today to say, you know, it's okay to just keep the shades closed. Um, you don't always have to be um, worrying about what's going on next door. And so I think that's what's happening today. I'm going to try to um, tease that out from the text. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Father, um, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather um, the, uh, the miracle that is Sojourn Carlisle, that you are building a, a community here to uh, proclaim the truth of your gospel, to be an outpost uh, for your love. And we pray this morning that you would soften our hearts, that you would till up those hard and compacted places, that we would be uh, attentive to your spirit, we would hear what you'd want to hear. Um, and we would ignore what, what you want us to ignore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's look at the first verse. With our hearts prepared, the first verse, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. 
Um, this is considered one of the most often misquoted and misused verses from the Bible, um, especially in our culture today. You've heard it in many forms. Um, don't judge me. Um, you don't have the right to judge me. Who are you to judge? Um, we hear this, you know, it's in multiple songs, um, this idea of only God can judge. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that the way that it's being used culturally right now is in this idea of um, that there should be no real standard of conduct. That's how it's being used. Like, you cannot hold me to a standard of conduct. I can do whatever I want. That's how it's kind of used culturally. So you can think, like, you might see um, an empty quart of ice cream on Instagram. The caption says, I ate a quart of ice cream for breakfast. Hashtag don't judge. Right? Um, and so we do this culturally, this like, hey, you know, um, I'm going to put something out there. I'm, I'm intentionally putting it out there publicly and saying don't judge, but what I'm really looking for is some affirmation, right? I'm looking for some justification for what I'm doing. So, um, it, you know, things that might be culturally odd, like eating a quart of ice cream for breakfast. No judgment here. Um, so the question is, when we see this, when he, when he says don't, you say, well, it, that's what the Bible says. It says don't judge. So maybe we're not supposed to, um, you know, supposed to make a determination of right and wrong. And that's, that's not what's, what's being said here. And the challenge for us is that in, for us in, the, in, the, in our language, in the English language, uh, judgment can mean multiple things. It can mean to discern right or wrong. Right to make a determination: is this right or wrong? That's a form of judgment. And then there's another form of judgment, which is which is condemnation, to condemn, to do, to make a determination, a final determination. And so, uh, just to be clear, as we're going into this, we're not talking about discernment here. He's not saying don't be discerning. The Bible is full of examples of of being called to be discerning. If you uh, you may not remember this story, but in First Corinthians five, Paul is writing a letter. Um, to the Corinthians, and there is there's someone in the congregation um, that is in sexual sin. And the church, uh, instead of dealing with it and making a discernment of right or wrong, they're actually kind of boasting in their freedom. They're boasting in their openness. And Paul says, this, is, this should not be the way that it is. You, you, should, um, you should be mourning. Um, you should actually be removing this person from fellowship. He says, I'm not even with you, and I can make a judgment. What this person is doing is wrong. And he even goes so far as to tell them, you should remove him from the fellowship. But what's interesting is that he says, remove him from the fellowship. He says, turn him over to Satan so that his soul might be saved. He's not making a final determination on his soul. He's saying, you should be able to, you should make a determination right or wrong, and you can even act on whether something is right or wrong. But don't, uh, don't necessarily put yourself in the place of condemnation that you can condemn them because you don't have that power. So he's not talking about that type of right or wrong. He is specifically talking about condemnation. We can see that in James 4. Um, James 4, it says, Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or, or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, when James, this is different than Corinthians, James is saying is that when you speak against your neighbor, meaning when you make judgment on your neighbor, when you declare them either right or wrong with God, that you are not participating, obeying the law, you're actually sitting in judgment on it. Whose seat is that? 
That's Jesus' seat. So he's saying when we get in a position where we begin to determine for other people and try to proclaim judgment on them, that we are sitting in Jesus' seat. And Jesus is loving and kind, but he does not take kindly to those sitting in his throne. So, he, so when we look at this idea of do not judge so that you not be judged, we're talking about do not proclaim condemnation on others. If we continue uh, in verse 2, he says, For you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure that you use. Okay, so this just got a little bit real, right? How many of you are really comfortable with being judged by the same standard that you judge other people? You guys want to do that? You guys feel like that's a fair, a fair standard? Very few of us would be okay with that, right? Consider how you would like to be judged. How would you, if, if you were going to be judged today on your conduct for this last week, how do you want to be judged? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess there's, there's a few things, three things that I put down. Uh, this is how I would want to be judged. One, I want to be judged fairly, in context. I want, you to, I want whoever's judging me to consider my whole story. So I had some bad moments this week, but I also had a rough week. And so if someone's judging me on those moments, I want them to know the whole story and say, hey, I'm going to take the whole story into account. Would you guys like that? Do you have a, you have a bad moment? Two, I want the benefit of the doubt. Give me the benefit of the doubt. Assume the best in me um, when you're making judgment. Would you all like that? Benefit of the doubt? And the third thing I, I put down here is, is I, I wouldn't want to be judged with mercy um, because I know how my week was and I can come up with a lot of excuses about some of the actions I took this week and I would say, you know, I made some mistakes and I need mercy. I don't want to... I don't want to... Um, be judged wholly on is it right or wrong. I want to be judged with some, by someone who shows mercy and love. So I think we'd all agree with that. And yet, it's rarely that that's the standard with which we judge others. That when we make judgments, when we sit with others and we proclaim uh, maybe with our spouse or maybe with a friend and we cast judgment on other people, maybe people we know, maybe people we don't know, Maybe we're watching cable news and we're casting judgment. Often we don't give benefit of the doubt. We're not really getting the whole story and we rarely show mercy. And this is what I think Jesus is getting at. Now who set the standard of condemnation in, in first century when Jesus is preaching this? Who, who, who set the standard of condemnation? Do you know? It was the Pharisees. Right? It was the Pharisees that established this standard, and they were the ones that were proclaiming who was right with God and who was not. So I want you to just take a minute, maybe close your eyes, and I want you to picture who are the Pharisees of the day. Who are the Pharisees today that we have to deal with? Can you get that in your mind? Do you all have a picture? Who are the Pharisees? There's a study done 10 years ago by the Barna Group. Barna is a... Is a um, uh, organization that does research on and around the church, and they surveyed a thousand people that were outside of Christianity. They were not believers in Christ. Um, and they were asked a bunch of questions that got kind of down to this basic idea, how do you experience Christians? Um, and do you know what the answer was? Loving, kind, 
Full of mercy? Think that was the answer? Wasn't the answer. Top two, judgmental and hypocrite. All right? The third one was very similar, same line. Judgment, judgmental and hypocrite. So when we think about the Pharisees of the day, the world sees us as the Pharisees of the day. And it's easy for us right now, the danger for us right now is to get defensive and say, well, um, we're simply really discerning um, and, you know, we're trying to help people change and, and, uh, and know what God wants from them. But that's not the experience that people have with us as a church. The invitation today is let this word interpret us. Let it interpret you. Consider how much of our discernment really is just silent condemnation. How often are we putting ourselves in Jesus' seat as judge and looking at others and, and, and putting them through the filter of, of our own judgment? And as we continue to kind of look at this text, one of the, before, before we move on, I, I want to ask, just think about the question, why why are we so prone to judge? What are the things that, that drive us to want to be in that seat? And I think there are two uh, very different things, but they tend to work uh, together. And this kind of, you know, this week, I, I did a lot of soul searching on these two things. Like, like, why are we so quick to judge? And I think there, there's two. One is that we get a feeling, a sense that we're actually bigger than we are. We put ourselves in a position, a, a, a position of um, superiority, right? And so when we feel bigger than we are, we get this distorted view of fairness. And we, ha- we have this built into us from the time we're kids, right? Like, like you, you have this thing in you that just hates it when you've done all the work, you've, you've worked really hard, you've made sacrifices, and then someone comes along and, um, and they're not doing any of the things that you had to do. Uh, and they get the same reward. It kind of burns us up inside, right? It burns us up. It usually burns us up when we, ha- when we are in a position of superiority, when we feel um, that we're bigger than we are. We chafe at this idea of someone getting away with something. A high view of self, it gives us confidence to be able to say, hey, I've passed the test, and so now I can be the judge of the test. And when we do that, when we're in that position, we rarely give the benefit of the doubt. We rarely show mercy. We rarely get the whole story. Um, I read this article uh, a while back. It was called, Your Left Brain is a Liar. Um, this is not a biblical text. Um, this was just an, this is an article, I think, in like Scientific America or something. Um, and it talked about how our brains work. And, um, and so take this for what it is. It's not scripture, but it, it said... Uh, um, the right brain, um, sorry, the right brain um, collects data. It, it, it gets the facts. It's collecting the data. And the left brain puts those facts together and it tells the story. And our left brain is not okay with gaps. It has to complete its story. The right brain, just picking up facts. Left brain's like, I need to, f- I need to, this is what gives life meaning. This is what gives moments meaning is the facts, or the, the facts put together into a story. Right, and um, and so it doesn't like gaps. And what the article talked about is that our our brains have a tendency to fill in the gaps if they're if they're there, uh, and we have a tendency not only to fill in those gaps, but our brain tends to fill them in wrong. If there's a gap, it just fills it in, right or wrong, 
and we don't really think about it. We just assume that our brain is right. That's why it said the left brain is a liar. And so if you can think of an example, uh, maybe you're leaving today and, uh, and your friend Jane is walking out and you give a little wave and Jane kind of looks down and walks out. What facts do we have? Well, the fact that we have is Jane didn't, didn't wave. The, the, uh, the data that we put in, the gap that we fill is, well, there must be something wrong. Something wrong. Jane must be upset with us. Um, I have one other fact. Uh, you know, we haven't really talked since the, since the potluck. Um, must be, maybe she didn't like what I made at the potluck. Maybe she thinks I'm a bad cook. I bet she's telling everybody I'm a bad cook. How arrogant is Jane that she would tell everybody that I'm a bad cook? I better tell Sally, right? So we only had two pieces of data. We had a data that she didn't wave, and we have a data that we haven't talked to her since the potluck but our brains fill in the gap. Am I the only one that does this? <laughs> argues with people in my head at night and I can't sleep and, you know, like, um, and, you know, I have these elaborate understandings of what happened. This is human condition, right? They didn't really give a reason for why our brain always gets it wrong or gets it wrong a lot, but we have a reason, right? We know, Genesis 3, condition of the fall. We are presupposed to sin. We're presupposed to be self-righteous. We're presupposed um, to think bad of other people. And so when we fill in the gaps, we tend to fill them in negatively. So that's one. We, we put ourselves too high. We also sometimes see ourselves too low. We get insecure. We're very aware of our failings. And so why do we judge others? Well, sometimes we judge others to drag them down. If we can't lift up, maybe we can drag them down and get on equal footing. Can you believe how much they spent on that car? I can't believe that. I know that he spent a month feeding orphans overseas, but do you know he read the Harry Potter series? I mean, seriously? Right? Like we try to find ways when we feel uncomfortable, when we feel low, we try to find ways to bring people down. Genesis 3. It's sin. Here's the issue that both superiority and insecurity lead to judgmentalism because they both lack love. When I think I'm too big, I don't have love for my brother or my sister. When I think I'm too small, I don't have love for my brother and sister. If you think about it, when we looked at the difference between chapter 6 and chapter 7, right? Do not worry about your life. What were we, what were we worried about? Think about what the concerns were. The concerns were, what will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? As we move into chapter 7, what are the concerns? Are they right before God? Right? The ch when we think about ourselves, it's all about mercy and comfort and care. When we think about others, it's like, I'm not sure if they've done enough quiet time this week. Grandma, how do you know? Somehow she knows, right? So think about this. As Jesus... Um, just back, we, we preached through this, chapter 5, he was talking about to love our enemies. Think about how he deals with conflict. He says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Do you remember this? We talked through this. And why? He said, so that you may be children of the Father in heaven, so you may reflect the truth of who God is, he says, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. 
So God has the right to judge, right? And certainly He's discerning. He's saying there are righteous and there are unrighteous. There are evil and there are good. He is being discerning and He's saying He has all the right to judge, but He does so with patience, with kindness, because it's His kindness, as He says in Romans 2, that leads, Romans 2, that re- leads to repentance. And you think about how God has judged us, that, that, that God has been kind and patient with you. Why? Because He loves you. He dearly, dearly loves you. The antidote from lifting ourselves too high or pushing ourselves too low is to accept the fact that we are deeply loved by God. And when you really believe, when you really know that you're deeply loved by God, then you are free to love others. Even if they're not doing everything right, they don't say the right things, they don't wear the right things, they don't listen to the right, it's okay. Because we can love them because we know that we've been loved by the King of the universe. Amen? The big idea is that without a transformed heart, if our hearts are not transformed in that way, then we're going to be of no use to anyone. And Jesus drives home this point with what uh, I've got to believe is a pretty unforgettable image. I mean, sometimes we read the Bible and we're a, little bit, we're a little bit uptight when we read the Bible, right? But the picture that Jesus gives is pretty ridiculous. So if we look at the next verse, he says, he says this, he says, Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't even notice the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to the brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye when look, there's a beam in your own eye. That's a pretty ridiculous picture. Someone walking around with a beam in their eye. This beam, the, the, the word here is like, a, is, is like a construction beam, right? So this is the picture. This is what he's saying. This is the picture. He's saying, how can you walk around with a beam in your eye and say, hey, hey, I noticed, I noticed there's a splinter in your eye. Here, let me take that out. Can I get that out? Anybody want this guy doing some eye surgery? Huh? It's meant to be ridiculous. He's saying, he's saying it's ridiculous um, for you to walk around judging people. And what is he saying? You know, some people think of this. They think when we're talking about this, we're talking about, hey, if you've got sin in your life, don't confront someone else with sin. Have you ever heard it used that way? Right? That leads to all kinds of craziness. That's not what this means. I've heard people say, you know, I noticed that that person was abusing their wife, but I've had trouble with anger in my life before, so I didn't really say anything. That's foolish. If you see someone who's got an issue with anger, you can come alongside and say, you know, I've dealt with anger myself. I've had some issues. I would love to help you. This isn't saying you can't call someone out who's doing something wrong because you've done it. That's not what this is saying. Um, think about this. He's, he says, where's the plank? Where's the plank? Where's the speck? It's in the eye right? It's how you see the world. It's how you view the world. And if you connect that to what we've been talking about, which is this idea of casting judgment, he's not talking about necessarily particular sin. He's talking about about us, again, sitting in that position of God, casting judgment on someone, saying, saying your worldview is distorted. Your understanding of God is distorted. Let me, you know, let me rebuke you. And he's saying, who are you to go around rebuking this person um, when you are so distorted yourself. You see, 
what's ridiculous in this story is the assumption that you and I have the clarity and wisdom to cast judgment on another. He's saying, how can you help someone if you don't love them? And if you're wondering, well, I think I do love them, let me just challenge you with this. If you love them, you would not be in such a hurry to, to cast judgment on them. If you love them, you wouldn't be in such a hurry to condemn them, right? And if you don't love them, then anything you're going to say is just, you're, you're a clanging gong, you're a, you're a worthless, you're not making, they're not listening, no one's listening, right? And so he's saying, what's ridiculous is for us to try to help someone else, try to take the speck out of their eye if we haven't actually done work on our own heart. And he's speaking certainly directly to the Pharisees of the day. And I think the Pharisee in our own heart. Right? He's like, when we attempt to establish standards and measures by what other people have to live up to, when we declare, you are right with God, you are not right with God, that is just ridiculous. That's not our role. That's not who God has called us to be. But he closes with this image. He closes this, this picture with this image. He says this. He says, hypocrite, actor, one who's pretending, first take the beam out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. It's kind of interesting, right? He doesn't just say, man, you got a beam in your eye. You're pretty messed up. You just, why don't you just go to the hospital? I'll take it from here. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, just leave your brother alone. You're going to do more harm than good. That's not what he says, right? And in a sense, what he says is, is repent. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your pride. Acknowledge your depravity and your need for Jesus. And when you do that, you can be in a position of help. Why? Why does, that, why does that change the story? Well, it changes the story because the transformed hypocrite, you and I, <laughs> the transformed hypocrites, when we've really been transformed by that love of Jesus, then we now have sympathy. We now have empathy for that person with the piece of wood in their eye, right? We can now understand how it got there. We know that we're no better than they are. We now come at helping someone remove that splinter from a position of love. That's the story. And I think this is such a merciful way. Do you see the mercy in Jesus here? That what He does for us is though, though He's challenging us, though there's a rebuke here, He gives us hope. He shows you and I mercy in this. He gives us an opportunity for redemption that we can remain in the story. I blow this all the time. I'm sure you blow it too. And Jesus doesn't say, you're, you're doing it again. You're judging people. You're lifting yourself up. You're pu pushing yourself down. I need somebody else. He doesn't do that. He offers a way of redemption that allows us to continue in the story that He is telling. And to me, that's extremely loving. Now we're going to jump to the last verse here. Not really a jump, it's the next verse. Um, he says this, kind of to 
end this section. He says, don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet and tear you to pieces. I'll be honest, this took a minute when I was like, okay, what's going on here? Um, What is Jesus talking about? And this is actually fairly debatable, what is happening uh, in this part of the text. Um, Here's what we know. Dogs in that day, these are not your lovable, cute little dogs that, you know, this is not a uh, labradoodle um, that doesn't shed. Um, The dogs of that day were scavengers. Uh, They would run through the town at night, and when you had meat and food that you didn't want anymore, you threw it out, and the dogs would go and eat it. Um, These weren't your household pets. Pigs uh, were... I know the pigs can also be wild. I think the pigs he's talking about here are domesticated pigs. Uh, they're considered unclean uh, for the people of Israel. And, uh, and for, the, for the most part, neither of these animals is very discerning when it comes to food, right? Um, so they'll take and eat anything. Also, when you think about the idea of what's he throwing, things that are holy uh, and pearls, uh, neither really know or have much use for pearls, if you can think about it. So that's what we know. Here are possible meetings. First possible meeting is that this is a new thought, that what Jesus is doing is entering a new thought here. Things that are holy uh, and pearls, things of great value, they're saying that all of that should go to God and essentially saying at that point that the rest of us are pigs and dogs, which some commentators say that's what's going on here. I actually don't think that that makes sense in the context. I don't think Jesus is calling his people to this life and then calling them pigs and dogs at the end of it. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, Another thought is that this is a contrasting thought, that what Jesus has been saying is, um, don't be so quick to judge. And this is the contrast that's saying, but be discerning. Um, That there are people out there that are antagonistic to the gospel. They're violent towards the gospel. And you need to know in that case that you need to, uh, or, or that you're free to not continue um, to try to throw your pearls uh, uh, before swine. And I would say there's some truth. I think, I think it's a nuance on this one. What I don't like about this explanation for me is that it puts us in a position of judging who's the dog and who's the swine, right? And so, you know, you're in an argument with someone and they disagree with you and you say, well, I knew I shouldn't have tossed my pearls before swine. Doesn't sound super loving to me. Right? I think it kind of puts us back into that position. Um, I think this is a continuation of thought. Um, the things that are holy, the things that are precious, the pearls that we have been given from Jesus are the truths of who God is. The, um, the invitation to a life as citizens in God's kingdom. I think those are the pearls. That, like Those are the things that are holy. And what he's saying is, is that those are primarily intended for you and I, the citizens of the kingdom. And when we try to take those things and we try to put them on someone else, essentially the standard of what it means to be uh, a kingdom citizen, and then we try to put it onto someone else, that that's really not fair, right? We not only do we have the truth of, of the scriptures, but we also have the Holy Spirit. We have the helper that helps us actually live out uh, what it means to be a Christian, to love one another, actually to, to care for people and love them rather than judge them. 
And so if you think about the image, tossing, a pearls, tossing pearls before a pig. Like a pig can't do anything with pearls. If he tries to eat them, like that's not going to work. Nothing can do with them. When you're given something that you don't know how to use it, what to do with it, how do you feel? I get frustrated, right? And when I get frustrated, that can lead to anger. And I think that's what's going on here. He's saying, when you take the, the, the truths of God and, and even the, the challenges to live as a community of God's people, and you begin to put that standard on someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it's very likely that you are not going to make a convert. You're going to make an enemy. When we talk about evangelism, and, and as a church, when we, when we want to fill these pews with people, we want to introduce people to a Savior, not a culture. We want to convert them to a Savior, not a culture. Things in the culture, the way people dress, what, what, we, what we eat, what we wear, you know, what we drive, those things are superficial. We want to introduce people to Jesus. We want them to be loved by Jesus, regardless of those things. And I think what he's saying here is simply that, is that our invitation is to introduce people to Christ. Um, if we try to impose a way of living on people that don't know, love, and are held by Jesus, it's not going to go well. And I think he's saying it's okay to entrust them to the work of God in their life. We don't have to throw those pearls and things that are holy before those who don't want to hear it. Does that make sense? It's a continuation. We tend to want to say, this is what it means to live holy unto someone who doesn't know Jesus, and we are, in, in a sense, they're feeling judged. They're feeling like you're judging them and condemning them by calling them to a standard before you've introduced them to Christ. It's a continuation of putting ourselves in a position of judgment. So if we look at this in summary, this is what I think is happening, and then we're going to talk a little bit about application that Jesus is calling us to a life of sober reflection where we allow the gospel truth to bring conviction upon our hearts and when we attempt to help one another, brother or sister, we do so gently with love and empathy. And when it comes to those who are antagonistic to the gospel, we love them. We entrust them to God and we simply love them. We don't try to impose our world on them. So what does that mean for us, Sojourn, Carlisle? What does that mean for application? I think of it this way, in light of what Christ has done, He's loved us when we were unlovable, right? He's shown mercy when we did not deserve mercy. He showed kindness when we didn't deserve kindness. We were clearly condemnable. So what does it look like when we're in conflict, um, when we're building this community, what does it look like for us to live in light of this command? And I would say, Three things. First thing, cultivate empathy. There's one thing I can encourage you as we're coming together as a community, cultivate empathy. What do I mean? I mean, what did we saw, talk about earlier? Give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't assume if something changes and you don't, like we've got two communities coming together so everybody feels like something is different. When something changes, don't, don't assume that uh, there's a bad motive behind it. Assume that there's a good one right? Benefit of the doubt. And you, you can apply this to what's going on with us as a community, but you can apply it in your life to your spouse. When your spouse does something you don't like, assume the best. Give them the benefit of the doubt, right? 
Don't fill in the blanks, whether it's a friend or a spouse or another member of the body. Don't fill in the blanks with the negative. Actually get to know the story. Ask questions. You go, you know what? I, I wonder if Jane's just having a, a bad day. I wonder if something happened with her daughter. I should go ask and find out before I think that, you know, the world revolves around me and the only reason that she could be having a bad day is because of me, right? Very possible it could be some, something else going on. So listen to stories. Assume you don't know it all. Cultivate empathy. And this is what's interesting for me. Conviction, conviction should work inwardly. Compassion should work outwardly. And we usually flip it. When we hear a hard word, we go, yeah, but God knows my heart. And then we try to, you know, letter of the law to the one next to us. Flip that around. Conviction, let it, let it till the, the, the soil of your soul. Let it till your soul. When it comes to compassion, that should go outward. Compassion to others. So cultivate empathy. Um, second, be a person of peace. I don't know how I can drive this home more, but don't live a life of being offended. Don't always be outraged. I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture, we live in what some are calling the culture of outrage right now. Everybody is outraged. Everybody is constantly offended. Don't feed that monster. Don't be that person, right? We have an enemy, a real enemy that loves when all we think about is what has offended us, what is outrageous, and it loves when we dive into that, dive into that fight right? So when you gather with your friends, don't sit around and criticize other people. Don't, don't look for things to be upset about. And some of you say, well, I don't do that with my friends. I've seen your Facebook feeds. I've seen your Twitter feeds. Sometimes we gather in different ways. Don't be the troll. Don't always look for a fight. Maybe you're right. Nobody needs to know it. It's okay. Be a person of peace. And then lastly, Take comfort. The invitation of this passage is to take comfort in the standard with which we've been judged. That we've been judged not on our actions or who we are, but on Jesus who took our place. He extended mercy and kindness, and for that we're grateful. And so my hope as this community gets built is that someday when Barna comes knocking on the doors of this community and they ask the question, how have you experienced Christians? I hope they think of us. And I hope what they think of us is that we are people who are merciful, who are kind, and who are abounding in love. Amen? Every week, um, we celebrate that grace and that kindness of, of Jesus by um, coming to the table and we break off a piece of bread. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us broken in our place, the mercy of God. We dip it in the cup that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us and for all so that sins may be forgiven. This may be an opportunity today as you come to the table to think about where are those areas where you've been, been judgmental, where you've sat in the seat of, of Jesus, a time to confess that, a time to rejoice in the fact that he's been so merciful and kind to us. Maybe you've got some people you need to talk to this week. Um, to show kindness and mercy to. Let that be some of the work that we do as, uh, as we take communion and we worship. Amen.
Let me pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that as we look at your word, as we let it till the soil of our hearts, um, that what you ask of us, you've made possible. And when you ask us to love others, we know that we can because you've loved us so well. Pray, Father, that you'd bring those to our hearts that we need to do business with, that we need to show compassion and mercy to. Father, as we go through our lives this week, help us to be people of peace. Help us to take rest in what you've done for us and who you are. Help us to cultivate empathy for others. And Lord, let us be those people that reflect the truth of who you are to the world around us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.